for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Today is Tuesday, February 15, 2022. And today's guest is Troy Pottinger. All right, welcome to the Fall Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Blasey, and today's episode is 201. We are above the 200 episode mark, and last week we did a long haul. It was two... I mean, it was like almost four hours long, but it was episode 200. And the response that I've got gotten from everybody, when I mean everybody, is there's been a lot. It's been all positive, and I greatly appreciate that. That is something that uh, we're I've said it before. We're going to do a lot more of is in-studio stuff, and people loved it. They I got a lot of remarks of, you know, that's one of, if not the best one you've done. Love the BS sessions you guys hit everything that I wanted to hear. So I can't wait to do more of that. So thank you guys very much for the support first and foremost. So today's episode is with Troy Pottinger. Troy is an Idaho guy and I look up to Troy. I've looked up to Troy for a long time. You know, I recently did a podcast with the Exodus guys and the the topic on that podcast was who are your five top five big buck killers, unknown big buck killers? And Troy was my number one. He kills giants in Idaho, in the mountains of Idaho, where, I mean, you really probably shouldn't be killing them because it's just so, you know, just so hilly and mountainous and big woods. And, and he's way up there. He's in like the panhandle of Idaho, like this little sliver. He's like real close to Canada and He's just doing it on a consistent basis, and honestly, he does it on scrapes, and that's today's topic is scrapes. 
And I'm telling you what, when you come away from this podcast, your mind is going to be blown on scrapes because mine was. Um, Troy has this down to a science and you're going to want something to write with or you're going to want to hit repeat and listen to this again because this is elite. This is an elite podcast. It really is. The information he puts out is ridiculous. We're not even done. I mean, we're, he's coming on again to do more. We're, we're just scratching the surface. We only had an hour to work with and I really wish we had like three or four hours, but Troy is going to come on again. And uh, like I said, this is an elite podcast. So I guess I want to get over this interview with Troy. Thank you guys very much for all the support. Go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and leave a written review. Also, if you listen to on Spotify, go to Spotify and leave a review. Um, I've said it before, go to the fall podcast on YouTube, subscribe to the channel. I'm putting up some hunts. Um, I'm going to be putting up some product reviews and everything. So it's going to be kind of a trickle thing. It's not going to be like an every week thing, but they will be up there. So go do that. Thank you guys very much. And here's this interview with Troy. All right. Welcome back to the fall podcast. And today's guest is a guy that I've been wanting on for a couple years. And I actually just told him I was a little intimidated to have him on because I felt like he's very elite and I'm not elite. So <laughs> Troy Pottinger, thank you for coming on, man. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It's it's my pleasure. Yeah, definitely. I, I appreciate you doing this. Like I said, you and I talked a little bit off, off record and I actually did a podcast with the Exodus trail cam guys and uh, not too long ago. And they said, well, who is your top five big buck killers, like kind of unknown guys. And you were my number one. Um, you, and the reason being is because typically, I mean, not typically, but you're doing it in Idaho in a state where I'll bet you a lot of money. If we were to put a panel on, you know, a hundred guys and said, Hey, would you go to Idaho to kill whitetail? I bet you 99 of them would say no. You know what I mean? And <laughs> you're doing it in a state where it, it you don't even think of whitetails in Idaho. What am I am I off by saying that? That's how I feel, I guess though. No, I think I think you're right. I think of the fact that it's definitely not a a big buck looked at state by any means and the the thing that I think that would turn a lot of guys off to coming to where I hunt whitetails if if they saw the playing field that I deal with. Um we're not talking congregated deer. You're talking high elevation, probably the most rugged, thick timber canopied covered country you've ever seen. Uh, these are, these are true mountain whitetails. Uh, a lot of my deer will range all the way up into 6,000 feet up to where the mule deer live. And then the muleys will live a little higher even, but yep. you know, we got, we got whitetails that, that basically will die in a drainage that might be 20, 30 miles long that you can't even get into half of the season without a snowmobile. Um, you got some bucks that th there's not a ton of them as far as numbers go, but you got bucks that die of old age, you know, just because the, the playing field, the country, the habitat is so vast and rugged. And, you know, the, then you add in the predator equation that, uh, especially where I live, Northern Idaho adds, uh, it, it's incredible place to hunt. And it's one thing I, I try to let people know when they ask me that question is why do I stay here and not go? Cause I could have moved and lived in a lot of places on purpose just to kill big deer. Well, I always wanted to stay here because I wanted to do it somewhere different than anybody else. And, and I knew my obstacles were greater and I knew that my, 
you know, the game plan I'd have to put together is just to get one crack at a five plus year old buck uh, was going to be very challenging because of the, you know, the uh, opposition that I face. But I stayed here on purpose for that reason, because I wanted to be different. Yeah. And I wanted to do it somewhere where nobody else was. I, I did. I didn't want to be the hundredth guy in Iowa, you know, and there's nothing sure. against that. I, I love to go hunt there. Don't take that wrong. But I mean, even the Wentzels left the Northwest to go back to kill big deer in Iowa. And those guys weren't far from me. And mm -hmm. I grew up reading their books, you know, and a lot of guys left the Northwest. David Morris left the Northwest. Uh, it's a, you ask any of them guys that used to be here and left to go to greener pastures. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to be the guy that I'll die in these mountains. I love that because for, I mean, you're speaking kind of the same Michigan talk that I like to, my, my, where my headspace is at, because yes, there is a ton of people here that hunt in Michigan and I talk about it a lot, but you know, you're hunting for that, that mountain five and a half year old giant we're hunting for the three to four and a half year old one thirty. That is, yep. it is few far in between. I mean, there really are in my area. So to me, like I get that question sometimes also is like, why do you still hunt Michigan? Well, I'm not gonna lie to you. It's a challenge still for me. Like I yep. love, I love the challenge, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what you're getting at too. What, what, what impresses me so much about how you do what you do. And I mean, there's so many things, but the number one that stands out is you are hunting whitetails that are getting hunted every day, all day, every second. It doesn't matter. They have so many predators, you know, with mountain lions, bears, all that stuff, and, and humans, and you have a two-month gun season. So, right. like, you're hunting whitetails that are literally looking over their shoulder every second of the day. Well, I'll tell you, here's a – I'm glad you brought that up, and I think your listeners will appreciate this story. Here's what my whitetails deal with. A lot of the country that I hunt also has reservation land uh, intermingled inter, uh, amongst all the properties of state ground and federal ground, and I hunt timber company ground. So I hunt public land whitetails in three or four different public accessible ways, um, including even reservation ground. And yeah, my whitetails deal with, I, mean, I got wolves everywhere. I mean, we have yep. a wolf, we have a wolf problem in Idaho, Northeast Washington, Western Montana. And for your listeners, I like to hunt all three states when I find the right buck. Um, and it's all the same habitat. Literally, it's the same habitat all the way across. And, and I run all the way up to the Canadian border okay. with it. Uh, and then unbelievable mountain lion population and healthy mountain lion population. So you stack the wolves, you stack the lions, every bear you can think of, including grizzlies. Uh, we got it all. Uh, and lots. Uh, you want to go predator hunting, you come out to the Pacific Northwest. Seriously. Really? Uh, and then you add in um, the reservation ground, the, the Native Americans, they start hunting in July with rifles. Okay. So, that, so that, that's instant pressure right there. Yeah. So you're talking before a buck is even fully filled out in velvet, he can get shot with a rifle. And this country, if you look at it on a satellite or Google Maps, it's littered with logging roads everywhere. Because this is this is timber country where I live, so it's all huge logging corporations and logging taking place even in the in the national forests. So there's roads everywhere. Um, so it's not like I'm always getting into a uh, 
just a sec. Sorry about that noise oh, in the good. back. You're good. We'll just go over it. But it's not like I'm always getting into some far off magical place that nobody's around me. The truth is, it's really hard to get away from pressure. And then you add in, so you add in that early gun season, and it goes uh, all the way till December first. Holy there's crap! July to of, December. There's a form of gun season on whitetails. If you include the reservation seasons in a lot of my areas from July all the way until December 1st. With rifles? Like you can use a rifle? With with rifles. Yes, sir. Holy shit. And I don't ever bring it up a lot. And the reason you you sparked my thoughts on that is I was hunting the best whitetail I've ever had in my life in the state of Idaho last year. And I was working a job in the summer. I, uh, um, I was doing some dirt work with my bulldozer and I was checking on this bucket. I was leaving my house at three o'clock in the morning and checking on him at daylight, uh, 70 miles away. And then I was going to my job and he ended up getting shot, uh, in July and gross 200 and netted in the high one eighties in July. But he got shot in July. Yeah, he was on reservation ground. Wow. So that's just kind of the thing. You know, I, I literally left this deer alone and wanted to, you know, my goal was to get him killed this year, but he didn't even make it. My point is he didn't even make it out of July. Yep. Uh, and, you know, and so, yeah, you add in all that. And then the predators, and really it amazes me. And then the only reason I've said this for decades, the only reason, my bucks are able to get some age on them in some places is because of the vastness of this country and the cover timber canopy. There's places I can get up on top of a mountain, take a picture. And as far as you can see, it's straight timber. Wow. So, so that's what, and it's steep, you know, it's really rugged, steep country. Yeah. Uh, if you flattened it all out, it'd be twice as much land. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of to paint a picture for your listeners. That's, that's the equation that I'm diving into with yep. a bow and arrow only every year. And I will not shoot a four-year-old. So my, my targets become a lot of times one or two bucks a year. And I try to find three or four, but a lot of times it's just one or two bucks that I'm working on the whole season to get one bow shot at. Mm-hmm. Trail cams. They are a big big asset to a lot of hunters out there and if you guys are looking for a new trail cam look no further than exodus trail camps exodus outdoor gear they have the five-year no bs warranty and a five-year theft and damage coverage so that means if your camera gets damaged or somebody steals it they will replace that camera within five years the five-year warranty is second to none nobody in the trail cam game out there does that these cameras are bulletproof they flat out work they are awesome. Also, go and sign up for the Exodus newsletter. Sign up for that. First-time customers, they will save big. Um, go to their website and check that out. So if you guys want to know more about it, go to exodusoutdoorgear.com. Were you always that way, not wanting to shoot four-year-olds, or was it like a stepping stone to get to where you're at now? It was a stepping stone when I was young. When I was, you know, I'm 52. When I was... 22, any big four-year-old in the world was in trouble. (laughs) When I was was 33 years old, I killed the number two state Idaho archery buck at the time. Okay. And he was was seven and a half, aged by a biologist, not by me. 
Um, the biologist told me either seven and a half, maybe eight and a half, but he thought seven and a half. Anyway, um, I decided when I was 33 and I killed some really nice bucks before them, but a lot of them were four and a half year olds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, be, having a bi- I have a biology background. Uh, kinesiology is what my major is. So I really started, you know, buying in or just thinking about the whole skeletal structure system of a whitetail. And they really don't mature till they're five. So I just decided after I killed that big deer, and I have been fooled by one buck that was just way bigger than I thought he was. You know, he yep. pulled me four and a half, and he was 166. So, wow. you know, that happens sometimes. But you asked me that question to answer it. At, when I killed that big deer when I was 33, I just told myself after that, okay, if you want to hunt this class of deer, then you got to do two things. You, you really got to fan out and find this class of deer because there's very few. Sure. And fanning out for me is 500 mile circle minimum. Wow. From my house, minimum of 500 miles from my house, three states. And all public, uh, right? All public ground? All of it. Yeah. Um, I do have some timber company ground that I hunt that is public accessible, 100% public accessible by anybody that can okay. wants to hunt it. Yep. So, and I've hunted some reservation ground in the past too. The res just put a great big price tag on hunting their ground now. So that's. <laughs> That's kind of a touchy subject out here this year, so I stayed off it this year. But anyway, all public ground, and I I really started paying close attention, you know, back in my 30s when we started having trail cameras work, you know, I started really paying close attention to my trail cam pictures, and I was seeing the biggest jump in my mountain bucks, which is different than an agricultural buck, say, in the Midwest. Uh, my biggest jumps were after they were fully skeletal mature. They reached that maturity. That's where I was seeing the biggest jump as far as their racks went. So it just made sense to me. Hunt them when they're mature. Do whatever I can to let a you know four and a half year old go. And like three years ago, I let a four and a half year old walk right by me that was in the one seventies, and he ended up getting killed by somebody else. And that happened. Holy shit, dude! I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> yeah, and it's because I just I made that decision. This is mm-hmm. what I'm doing. Yep. And. And of course, my son will hold me accountable too. He's dad. Don't you dare shoot that four and a half. <laughs> well, of course, you're probably holding him accountable. Hey, you're not shooting anything four, so he's giving it right he, back to you. He still shoots the four and a halves if they're big enough. Oh, uh, good. It's for him. funny because he's kind of he's getting there. He's only 18 though. So, but no, um, I just decided I, I wanted to hunt the top end whitetails in my area, and if they didn't have the age, I wasn't going to shoot them no matter what. And man, I have lost some beautiful bucks to other guys kill them at four and a half because not only are they mature at five and a half i feel like in this country they're at the top of their game they're the wisest smartest healthiest strongest they ever are at five and a half and older Mm -hmm. Uh, and we i see this and It'll be interesting for your listeners to compare it in, in, in their areas. If you get a buck that can reach five and a half, my bucks make really good jumps between five and six and six and seven. Really? And, okay. And what I compare it to, and I think it has a lot to do with our DNA up here, I'm really close to Canada. And if you watch like those guys on Canadian Whitetail TV, you ever watch that show? Yep, I have. Yep. You notice how they let those bucks in that country go to six, seven, eight, nine. And those bucks keep making jumps even in their later age. Those bucks in that Canadian country stay big 
tell eight, nine, ten, even a lot of times. Why is um, that? Do you think? I, and that's my that's my thought. It's just a theory. I have a lot of the same DNA along my borders, and I see it with my bucks. Mm-hmm. They do really well, and we're talking thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of trail camera pictures over the last twenty years. My bucks do great at seven. A lot of times, my bucks are their best at seven years old, and I've I've talked about that on podcasts before, and I'm sure some people raise an eyebrow, but it is what it is. It's what I see. It's the sheds I pick up. Uh, literally, you give me a six or a seven year old in the mountains, I'll take it over a five year old. Usually, he's usually better. Yeah. Um, I think it's because of the nutrition, the DNA, the combination of everything in this country. I just feel like how tough of life they live. They have to get to that age to fully fill out and be fully skeletal mature, putting all of their uh, nutrition towards their antlers because they're not eating in a, in a nutrition-rich crop field. field. Mm-hmm. And yep. that's, just, that's just a theory. That's just my theory, but it, does, it plays out that way here. Now, I get some bucks that are, when they hit four and a half, they're never any better, too. You know, mm-hmm. they just stay. They that's, just. Yeah, that's like anywhere, though, of, too. Yeah. I get those bucks too that when they hit seven and eight, they go downhill. Mm-hmm. Usually it's because of a really, really hard ass winter or something that beats them up. Or, you know, I've had bucks get attacked by mountain lions and just have lacerations all over them and tore apart. And I can't even believe they survive it. And they'll have a bad year after that or something like that. Yep. Yeah. But then they'll bounce back the next year. Yeah. That's crazy. How, how is your guys's, uh, your deer herd in, in the mountains? Like, are you seeing a lot of deer on your sits and you know what I mean? Or is it very sparse? Are you, are you seeing only a few deer here and there? Well, I play a completely different game than I think anybody in the country plays. Um, mountain deer have to communicate and they are spread out. Okay. And that's why I'm such a scrape hunter. Um, my mountain whitetails, the number one draw for them, the number one draw for an old buck that he's not afraid of. Um, and I bring that up because I hunt Washington state where you can feed. I hunt Idaho where you can't Montana. You can't. So take all this into consideration. I play the game in each state accordingly. Um, but these bucks, the number one spot that I can get a five plus year old buck to visit in the daylight is that a huge community scrape where all the does in the local area will check the young bucks are checking it and he'll come for, you know, it's nothing for our deer to walk a mile or two in a day just to go check a scrape, not even a big deal to them. Mm-hmm. They will go check it and they, and they're, you know, these deer out here are built like seriously, I mean, excuse my language, but they're brick shit houses. Oh, yeah. They are just, they are just tanks and they're muscular and they don't carry a lot of fat, but they're built. Um, and they'll cover ground like a mountain goat and they will check scrapes. So I tend to, I'll have days where some of my scrapes are working so good that, and, and this probably isn't a lot of deer for a lot of people, but for me, I might see 12 deer in a day, mm-hmm. a slow days, two or three. Okay. So, and it's, and if I didn't run those scrapes, I, I wouldn't see as many bucks. I know I wouldn't. Gotcha. Are and you, in the state of Washington where I can feed, I have to set up a triangle because if I don't, I lose all of my does. I lose them all to the guys that do. So I set up a triangle and we are like out, we're like Canada. 
we'll put a little alfalfa out in Washington and then I'll set a big scrape up 20, 30 yards away. And it's crazy to watch, but my big bucks will check that scrape, but won't go near where the does will go over and feed during the daylight. They won't even go near it. Okay. They'll literally, they'll stay away from it. Yep. But they'll check that scrape. So you're keeping, with your triangle, you're keeping the does there with the feed. Yes, I have to. And the bucks are just kind of satelliting them with the scrape. They'll they'll downwind it, and they'll check that scrape. And that's where I'll shoot those deers at that. I have never in my life, never on film, ever shot one standing in a feed pile, ever. Really? Um, Idaho, I just hunt straight scrapes. But I'm telling you, I'm a straight shooter with people. People ask me all the time. They come to my boot camps. I get a lot of Eastern Washington guys come to my boot camps, and I shoot straight with them. I say, listen, you don't play this game. You don't have any does. You don't have any does. Guess where your bucks are? Mm-hmm. You know, and that makes that's sense. A, yeah, I've played that game now for about a decade, and it's been really good with that triangle setup. Uh, and the more I've perfected it, the more I separate them. Okay. The wider, because the farther I, you get them apart. Oh, yeah, because I want my bucks. I'll usually always set my scrape right on the edge of real thick cover so he can just slink up to it downwind, check it, and leave. And what they'll always do is circle. If if there's any does around, they might come across. But I have never had one ever in my life, the Lord knows this, ever come in and eat (laughs) on me in the daytime, ever. Not the old guys. The young bucks, hell yeah, they're dumb. They don't get it yet. But the old ones that learn it's dangerous, in that country over there. And then when I get into Idaho, I don't have to play that game, even though there's a lot of people that cheat and do it. I just hunt those big community scrapes and I hunt a lot higher than most people I catch. I hunt very close to big buck bedding areas, even during the rut where they really like to bed or get a, get a little bit of rest during the day. If they, you know, if they need some rest. Helix broadheads, they are bad ass bad. They are, they literally are. You can get a single bevel, right or left bevel, Helix Broadhead. Their solid blade design makes it quieter in flight. These things are whisper quiet. Stainless steel design. Um, I did mess up. I was called out by Bryant from Helix. I did mess up. If you buy Broadheads, the sharpener does not come with them. you got to buy that separately, but they do offer a sharpener. I shoot the 125s. I know a couple guys are going to shoot the 100s. My wife is going to shoot the 100s this year. They are badass. So go check out Helix Broadheads. If you guys want to know more about them, just call them. Uh, Their number is 877-893-7155. Tell them AB from the Fall Podcast told you guys to call. Okay. So that that triangle is that's interesting because now going through my head is like in a state like Ohio where you can feed. Absolutely. I mean, yep. why not try that? You know what I mean? Like why yeah. why wouldn't you? It seems like it could translate to other states as well if you have the right components as far yep. as you know, thick cover for bedding like you talked and it just makes sense to have the does just keep them, you know, with the food and then have the bucks come pick them off, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's how I hunt Oklahoma too. Okay. When I get to go to Oklahoma, there's, there's always, there's always feed. I get away from that. I try to move off of it and get in security cover where a buck will approach it, but not go to it in the daytime. And then I'll set a great big scrape right in his face, blowing towards his bed. And, and I'll make sure where I place that scrape, the scent to his bedding area is basically an all day scent in his face. Oh, I and like he, that. He can't, they can't stand it. They, they, they can't take it. They come to it. They check it in the daylight. 
Yep. Now, are you just trying to set that up knowing what the prevailing wind is usually being? 100%. Yeah, I just check the wind for the week and see what it's doing, and I know that's his bedding area. Uh, I place it on purpose, and then I always set off. My set is always off to the edge wind of that, playing it pretty tight usually. Um, But just off of his nose as he approaches and where I think he'll approach that scrape by 20 yards. Okay. It just missed I always set my tree stand up in that triangle and that triangle can be really like in Oklahoma. Sometimes I'm 50, 80 yards away uh, or try to move away from where those deer have been fed before I get there. And then I'll get into the security cover, lay the scrape out, give them something they're not, you know, that most guys don't throw at them. And I play off the edge wind of that scrape. Okay, Boy, so they come, to those, they come to those in the daylight like crazy. Okay, so scenario here for you, like let's take this Oklahoma situation. Let's say you have feed out, but you're coming to hunt, and let's say you don't have a scrape out, or are you putting feed where there's already been a scrape, or are you going in and creating that scrape when you get there? When I go out of state to a buddy like mine in Oklahoma, and what's worked for me is he'll already have them. He's getting pictures and feeding deer year round. That's what he does. And that's yep. how they hunt it down there. And that's, that's their deal. And that's cool. I'm fine with it. I get off of that. I go into where a buck feels really safe into the thicker timber security cover or move towards his bedding, basically to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. I get closer to his bedding off the edge and I'll lay a scrape out immediately. Takes me five minutes to build one, maybe 10 at the most. And I douse it with, buck fever synthetics and then it's working for me the whole week i'm there and i throw a camera on it okay and you know i've done it and killed one of the biggest deer ever killed my life on a buck that we wanted he wanted me to kill but i was able to set my stand he told me set it where you want uh i jumped down i don't even know if i told him but i purposely built a big scrape out in front of me and i killed that deer like four hours later wow that's crazy because deer are very visual you know what I mean? And like, if they can smell it, that's great. But they, I think they like that visual just as much as the scent. Do you agree with yeah. that? Yeah. When I, you know, to me, building a scrape is artwork. And I've talked about that with guys, you know, you better, you better build the scrapes that you're going to build. And I build a lot of mock scrapes. You're basically trapping whitetails. You've probably heard me say that mm-hmm. before. Yep. Yep. But when I hunt whitetails, because I grew up in Idaho and there was no feed allowed, and I don't want to get on this feed topic too long. It's just the States that allow it. Sure. But when I grew up hunting whitetails with zero feed allowed all these decades, it was all about trapping them. Mm-hmm. So the, the scrape to me is the one thing I want over anything. Um, because I can trap a whitetail buck at that scrape. I can turn that into a trap to him because I'll get all the local does, does hitting it. I will make it look so authentic, like a true community scrape in the environment that they live in. So you need to, you need to put boots on the ground and know what your environment and what your deer, uh, how they like, I mean, you got to know the species of licking branch that they prefer the most, you know, employ that, look at the size of your true community scrapes, what they look like to a deer. When you create that mock community scrape that is so authentic to them that they're used to seeing and that those four or five, six-year-old bucks have seen their whole life in their, in, in their habitat, when you create that, they truly treat it. And I run a lot of video on cameras. All my scrapes have video on them. 
when they first find it, it almost it almost blows them away that they missed it in their territory. Mm-hmm. So then I get a repeat. Like when they first find one of my scrapes, I got to get on those if it's during hunt season because if I if the my target buck finds it for the first time, it all it creates like a almost a frenzied checking approach by him that first week. Like he gets excited, like this is new. I need to keep going back, right? Yeah. How did I miss this? You know, yeah. in my yep. territory type thing. And I put multiple deer profiles in it. Um, when I was young, before any sense were out, before I even tried buying them, when I was very young, I talk about this in my other podcasts, I used to take a little tiny garden shovel in a Ziploc bag. And when a scrape would get pounded by eight or 10 deer in my area, I would just dig up the dirt, keep my hands out of it, put it in a Ziploc. It'd be full of five different, six, seven, eight, whatever, different deer peas. And they were all hot or they were all uh, fresh, mm-hmm. not necessarily a doe in heat, but it might've had one in it. But anyway, and I would transfer those to other scrapes, five, 10, 20 miles away. And I would even take one of the licking branches sometimes, take it with me, retie it on with a zip tie back in the old days or whatever I had to use a parachute cord. And I put it right on that licking branch and add all those deer to that scrape. Yep. So I would add all that scent to the scrape and that's trapping. You know, I'm trapping whitetails. As soon as I do that, and then we're talking back, this is back in the 90s, before I had access to so many good products. Um, the daylight activity at those scrapes would pick up incredibly mm-hmm. because I added five, six, seven, eight more deer to the equation instantly. Right. You could be adding like another mature buck that is just yep. pissed off, you know, and, yes. and they can they can get that in that scent. Yep. And I, and I started, I did that young. I did that when I was young and it, it all really stemmed back from when I was a kid in my teens, I would literally pick up shed antlers in the spring on purpose and I would buy school clothes with them because antlers were worth money. And I liked to walk the mountains behind my house and I could go pick up elk and deer sheds and hike all day and be happy and make some money at it. Well, what I started noticing when I was a kid and I was picking up on this stuff and paying close attention is that all the scrapes I'd come across in the springtime, March, April, May, uh, had deer tracks in them no matter what, even if it wasn't during the season, mm-hmm. they, you know, during the, uh, the rut or the scraping phase of the rut. And I thought, well, there's still these deer are walking through these scrapes. And even though they're not pissing at them in the summer or in the spring, they're still hitting the licking branch. And I was able to figure that out just because on my ranch that I grew up on in northern Idaho as a kid, I would watch bucks that were on our place we had this one scrape when i'm talking young i was 11 12 years old but we had a one we had a scrape that was right on our tree line and i would see bucks all through the year and does address the licking branch even when they weren't scraping in it all year all year and that tipped me off right there when i was young they will come to that spot all year to hit the licking branch and you know i started talking about this probably 20 years ago when nobody talked about it a lot. And now everybody in the world out there and, you know, cause everything blows up like fire when it comes to hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody in the world know, would agree now that licking branches don't just get addressed during the hunt season. They get addressed year round. Right. And then when you get migrating deer like mine that have to leave their home ground when they get two, three, four, five, six, seven feet of snow, sometimes up to 10 feet of snow and where they like to live during the hunt season, they have to come back in April and May when the snow's gone 
and they have to reestablish their social network. So those communal scrapes become huge. They all go back to those big scrapes and let all the deer know they made the winter. They're here. They move back in for the, for the upcoming breeding season. Yeah. They're almost like their, uh, their, their version of social media. You know it what is. I mean? Like it's their yeah, Facebook. <laughs> and, and you know what they, you know what they like about it? it it's safe to them. Mm-hmm. It's way safer than what they've experienced, especially go back to the old mature bucks that survive a state where you can bait. They know that they can be there in the daylight. For sure. Feels comfortable. That's the, it's a comfortable place. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Would you say that you're hunting over scrapes? Like how, I guess put a percentage on it. How much are you hunting over scrapes? I never hunt without a scrape in the equation. Really? Okay. So what if you're going to an area that doesn't have one? I just build one 10 minutes. It's built. Really? Why, why, why not give a mature buck to your, now remember I'm targeting a buck. Mm -hmm. I know him. I've either glassed him a bunch, trail cammed him, got him figured out, or at least know where he's hanging. And yes, they do move around. So I have to build mock scrapes in different areas right. for different parts of the season because they move around. They, they have their summer ground. They have their f- early fall ground. They have their rutting area. They like to rut in. And some of my bucks are a five mile circle rut. And some of them stay in, you know, maybe a two or three mile spot. Anyway, all that to say, anytime I hang and hunt or set up a stand to hunt, always a scrape gets built because there's no reason for me not to add that extra uh, incentive for him to come see my spot in the daylight. I mean, it's, it's a no brainer to be on a mature buck. Yep. It makes sense. Yeah. It's a no brainer and it's not that hard. It's just a matter of, you know, I've built thousands of them. Well, probably not thousands, but I've built several hundred over the years easily. And it's just a huge impact on them uh, instinctively when they smell that scent, it's they're inquisitive about it. And as long as I keep my human scent out of that and don't booger it up, I mean, I, I always get the biggest, most mature buck in the area that that wind will blow to within a day or two. Always guys. I really think right now is the time to be checking out all the gear, what you're going to change, what you're going to use next year. Look no further than Novix tree stands. And the reason being is because number one, it's made in the USA. Number two is because they're straight up badass. That's what they are. They flat out work. They're awesome. They're comfortable. They're ergonomically really nice. Uh, the Hilo to me, when I'm wearing it on my back, going in on a hanging hunt is awesome. It does not extrude from my body. I'm not a very big guy. I mean, I feel like a wet biscuit right now, but, but that's just because I need to get on treadmill, but I'm not a big guy. Um, you need to go check these out. 10 pounds. The stand is 10 pounds. That's with the buckles and with the pad for the seat. The platform is 26 and a half by 16. These things are very versatile. Uh, You can use them as set stands. You can use them as mobile stands. And honestly, I love the mini sticks, okay? And I'm going to put my own cable aiders on it this year. I used them a little bit last year. They're light. They're awesome. They pack together really good. Um, I just think they're a, a great way to get it out into the woods and hunt more efficiently and be versatile. So go check them out at novixoutdoors.com. Okay. Now, speaking in hypotheticals here, and I guess give me your best, you know, your best equation on how you would do this. Let's say you're, you don't have a buck targeted. And the reason why I'm saying this is because a lot of my listeners probably 
aren't targeting right. a specific buck. So I'm trying to like put right. it in their terms I, yes, as well. Yes, I get that. Yep. Well, if you're going in blind or, you know, right. maybe you have some intel, somewhat of intel, but you just, you're not targeting one buck. How are you approaching that when there's not a scrape there? Are you still building a scrape or like, how are you setting all that up? Well, this is the perfect question for me. If you ask me how I prospect, I prospect for big deer while I'm hunting other deer two or three years ahead of time. If okay. that makes sense. Yep, definitely. So, so what I'm doing when I'm prospecting is going into great habitat that I've deciphered from satellite imagery, driving into the country, walking it, uh, seeing the sign, let's say, so I'm prospecting for a giant, hoping and believing that this is a great area due to probably 10, 12 different factors. And so I'm going in blind when I prospect. I always build a just a mega beautiful community scrape for all the deer in the area to find take it over and then of course my target or or my goal is to get a target buck there within a season and a lot of times he's there within two weeks if okay. i and it's because i it's because i'm going in blind but i'm going in with a very good understanding of the habitat that i look for uh to expect based on how the winds work in those mountains expect a big old whitetail to be able to have favorable conditions so i'm always targeting an area that would give a whitetail an old buck the best advantage out there versus hunters and prey or predators versus yep. hunters and other predators so i take all that into account and it always starts with the wind like if i was going to come and dive into michigan somewhere if i could get into some big country i would look at how the wind works in that country number one and then I would get on satellite imagery and I would get on topo and I would break down an area that had the best security cover I could find for miles. I would look at all your road systems and I would be willing to work harder than most guys, even at my age, to get away from some of the pressure if I could. And then I would go in and I would build that giant community scrape and it would take some work because it isn't going to be just plopping over the edge of the road. You know what I mean? Yep. And I would get in there and I would build that. And the great thing about a community scrape, you build it accordingly. You, you add multiple deer profiles to it. You give, you give it the aesthetic appeal that all the oldest bucks in that country would accept. And they'll look at it and go, yeah, that's legit. That's real. It smells right. It looks right. It's been here for a long time. How did I miss it? And then I would let my cameras do the work for me and I'd stay the heck out of there. And that's how I prospect out here. It's exactly what I do. Okay. That's how I would dive in blind. I got you. That's that totally hit the nail on the head. And I like how you, you know, put it into a scenario like here in Michigan because that 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 gives a lot of people a good visual on what you would obviously do. I guess I'm gonna take it a step further. Now you say that building a community scraper, building a scrape is an, an art form. It's it's a piece of art. Let's break down how you're building these things. And I also want you to hit on uh, the multiple deer profiles. Like, how are you doing that as well? And trying to let the listeners know, like, how they could do it as well. Like, what are the steps that you're taking to do it? Okay, so the first part of that, as far as just making it authentic, number one, it, let's say you guys you guys in Michigan want to find a piece of ground, you know, start with the map, start with how the wind works in the state. Uh, 
and you find a chunk that you feel is is an obstacle to most people i would start with that and then i would get in there and i would get boots on the ground first and i'd walk it and i would read i don't miss anything in the woods i am so like i'd say my greatest strength is my perception i I literally see every rub, every track, every, I pay attention to detail. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like detail is everything to me. Um, and I think it stems back. You and I were earlier talking about being athletes yep. and play college level sports and the details of being good or great. It's, it's different. Um, so I would dive into that ground after I did all my map study and, and you got to look at topo and habitat both. You got to look at both. You got to get that security. They have those deer need that security cover. Then I'd go put boots on the ground and I would walk that country and break it down and grit it like nobody else. And I would find sheds, I'm sure. But what I would look for is what the deer prefer, how they build the big scrapes, what species of timber that it's being used on. I would find i would go until i find those kind of that kind of evidence and then i would mimic that as far as the way it looked the species that are being used what the deer prefer in the area what they like to rub on everything because when i build a community scrape i put community rubs into around it i make it look like i make it look like a war zone i make it look like it's the hottest spot in the country for deer to meet up and I don't overdo it. I don't make it crazy. I, I look, I base it on what my deer show me in my woods. Right. And, and the interesting thing is, and I'm able to speak on this because I do it. I hunt three different states up here. I get into some different habitats. They're very similar. But in some drainages, I have deer that really prefer red fur, Douglas fur. Yep. In some drainages, I have deer that prefer alder in some deer and some drainages i have deer that prefer ocean spray i go with what the deer prefer in that area when it comes to the licking branch that licking branch is key and the look of the scrape is key meaning it needs to impress them it needs to have the look the size that the deer really are drawn to i mean what are you really drawn to as a mammal something that's impressive yeah, the you wow know, factor. The, the wow factor, and it has to smell perfect. Mm-hmm. So then, when we now did I now can we go to multiple profiles now? Yes, or did I, I would love to. That? No, that 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 you're basically mimicking so, what you're what you're scouting when you, you when you scout it. Yeah, yep. I and, and I've trust me. If I go into an area I'm comfortable with and it's the same habitat as two drainages over, I can go lay out one without having to scout that drainage. Yep. But when I start getting fifty, hundred miles away in different spots. That's where I get serious about really seeing what the deer in that drain, that specific area prefer, because I get different species of timber at different elevations too. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I don't know that you guys have such an elevation change like I have. No, we're flat. <laughs> You're flat. <laughs> yeah. So yep. yeah, that's what I do. I mean, I, I could see, I would have a blast and you guys probably have swamp ground and all kinds of stuff. Lots like of swamp. That. Yep. See, I would go into those swamps and I would try to get away from people and find those places where does and bucks can both survive and make it through the rutting season all the way through the rutting season uh and build those yeah those and, and before we get to the profile real quick i don't want to go too much in a rabbit hole but talking about swamps one of the coolest things that i've heard you say and it was like i i don't know we talked about the detail things and it's something i've never heard anybody say 
is your canopy, how dark the timber is where you hunt. And deer like to have a comfort in darker timber, which is crazy to me. Like that you were able to pick that up because, you know, I particularly, I have a swamp here, a pretty good sized swamp on one of my family farms. And it is darker than shit in there all the time. You know what I mean? I feel like the, I feel like a trail cam would be on infrared the whole day. You know what I mean? And I've always stayed out of it just because I've hunted the fringes, but just because it's so thick. And I feel like that's the bedding. I feel like that's the heavy, right. dense cover, and I don't want to blow every deer out of there. Right. And, and you're exactly, you're right, especially if you're limited on the size of the bedding area. But a guy like me, I can dive into heavy can- canopy timber for hundreds of miles. Yep. So so I get, I. it's funny you brought that up. I usually, I try to, I try to film everything, and I usually have to pack my stuff up. 10 minutes before last shooting. Line. I bet. Because I, yeah. Because I'm in heavy timber cover canopy. Uh, and yes, old bucks learn through stimulus response that when they're out in the wide open and lots of light, bad things happen. Mm-hmm. They learn that through life. They've had close calls or, you know, or they might've got nicked or shot at, but they also learn when they get in that dark, heavy cover they don't a lot a lot of times they don't see any they don't experience any danger you know compared to what they do when they get out in the open my my old bucks in this country it's fun to watch them and i always set up accordingly but a lot of times when they come up through to check my scrapes they will pick the heaviest little pieces of cover all the way in even if i'm setting a scrape up 10 yards outside of the heavy cover but the, it's so fun to watch them work their way up and they will purposely choose the heaviest cover to work their way to it versus everything four and a half years old and younger, three and a half, especially will just get to it. You know, it's still use the wind a lot of times, but they'll cut across some openings. Yep. You know, and when I heard you say that for the first time, I always ask myself, why, why does he think that? Why does he see that, you know, in his scenario, the best thing I could come up with is because Deer are usually bedding and feel comfortable in those thick, dense, dark areas. It's comfort stimulus response over their lifetime. Yeah. It totally is. They, it gives them a comfortable, safer approach. Um, you know, I, I do it when I get to my stand. When I hike into a stand, um, you know, the last thing I want is deer to pick me up seeing me. And I usually hunt pretty close to bedding areas. So oftentimes I'll walk a longer route around, climb the steepest face to get to it, come up, you know, I'll do whatever it takes to try to stay out of sight. Sure. You know, and obviously I got to keep my scent away. That's a no brainer. Obviously I'm trying to come into where I'm a, I'm approaching where my scent isn't blowing right at a bedding area because I hunt close to beds. Mm -hmm. Even during the rut, I hunt where bucks like to hole up for at least, sometime or part of the day sometimes to get a break um but no to to bounce past that and get to the profile what what i've done over the years is started way back like i said when i was digging dirt up multiple deer peeing in a scrape and, and ziplocking it um i've just taken the whole buck fever synthetics and i have my own personal to me blend that i've tinkered with for years with using buck fever so i'm adding multiple deer profiles on purpose and there's even some stuff that 
I've learned works great that I add into it too. And, you know, guys get that from me all in country and they love it because it's five, six, seven deer in a bottle. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I'm just trying to add different urine uh, smells to deer, not just one. One is okay. One can work great. I feel like I see more frequency in daylight from older bucks when I add multiple, especially when I start, you know, when I build a scrape, guys will ask me all the time. I get hundreds and hundreds of whitetail hunters across the nation that are scrape hunting now. And they'll say, Troy, you know, when I, when you build your scrape and I say, you load that thing up because you're trying to mimic a community scrape that's been there for decades. Yep. I said, you load that thing up. Don't worry about it. Don't think you're going to scare every deer in the world out if you use the right scent. The thing, the reason why I like the buck fever synthetics is I've never, ever had it spook deer, ever. Okay. Never. Not once. Never in my life in any state have I watched it spook deer. That's why, I mean, I, it, you know, I like to go with stuff that works. Yep. And the cool thing about the buck fever synthetics, too, is it sits on your shelf for a couple of years. It doesn't matter. It doesn't rot. There's no protein in it. It's all synthetic. And we got a lot of states nowadays that aren't allowing anything but synthetic. So it's just a win-win with that. And I make a combo blend uh, that I have tested and tried and tinkered with for decades to where now I just blend it all. I have my measurements that I have. I mix it and put it out, and it's just money. Like the big buck that I was hunting this year, um, and my my time was kind of limited with my son playing college football. I, I mean, and I I – I blew it. I shot right over him at 16 yards, but uh, long, long story short, I had my great shot. I had him. I first time I missed one a long time. It happens very humbling. Um, but all that to say, uh, every time I went in to hunt him and when I would freshen that scrape, that's my rule. I only freshen him when I hunt him, uh, after the initial build or check a camera. That's when I freshen, uh, it pulled him there right away. Way more daylight than when, if I hadn't been there for a while, as soon as I freshened it, he was there always within 48 hours checking it. Really? And I was near his bedding area. Yeah. Wow. So when you're doing your blend, I'm sure when you were trying to, you know, beta test this, if you will, I guess, or just try to figure everything out, were you taking multiple bottles to the scrape and just dumping multiple bottles in there? Or was it like, well, maybe if I just try to mix these, it'll work better. I just always mixed from the start at home because it made sense to me. Okay. And, you know, to this day still, if I get a scrape that's just getting pounded by seven or eight deer and I'm getting them pissing in it, it, I mean, daily, to this day, I'll still transfer that dirt to other scrapes sometimes. Okay. It works. Yep. Yeah. What I like about the buck fever synthetic is I can reach out to any deer community with it. And if they're, in if their nose is in range of that scent they're coming to check it they always do does and bucks all all of them come to check it eventually within a week um another thing i do is i cast it uh, i use big spray bottles and when i initially build i build this beautiful scrape i load it up with scent but i'll take the licking branch scent and i'll spray it 20 feet high in a tree to get the scent out initially okay that makes because I, I mean, I'm, playing, I'm playing common sense the wind right I want that wind to catch it, not just at, uh, you know, chin height of my licking branch. I want that initial scent to get out 
to every deer in the country that that scent can blow to. And so, yeah, I'll cast it up high uh, using those spray bottles. Um, I overload it initially. And then once the deer start checking it, they take it over. And then I only refresh when I check a camera or hunt it. Okay. And when you're refreshing, are you still doing that mixture or are you just kind of coming in and just throwing, you know, maybe one different, you know, are you still using the mixture throughout the whole thing? Or you I just... pretty much only use my mix okay. yeah. <laughs> because it just, I just see great results. Yep. Uh, does it bother me if I only have say one of the pieces of the mix, as long as it's there's urine, I really, you know, that forehead glance key, mm-hmm. that forehead glance scent really helps. But yeah, as far as urines go, I pretty much don't go anywhere without making my personal mix just because it, I, I like the way it works. Um, but for years, for years I didn't, and it worked fine too. I just, I just feel like I, I feel like I get more instant results when I add multiple profiles, just like I did when I moved the dirt. Yep. I got you. Is your mix uh, a big secret that you like to keep on the down low, or is it something that you could definitely tell everybody? You know, <laughs> I, I give so much info out to people, so much. I, I share everything. The one thing that's real personal to me is perfecting that. And, you know, that's something that I do kind of keep to myself. I'll say this. It's buck fever synthetic paste. Huge. Okay. Only yeah. buck fever yeah. stuff? Eh, mostly. Okay. <laughs> that's all right. That's that's all I wanted to know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I have very, very – there's a few things that are coveted to me that I put so much time and effort into that that's one of them. Uh, I know this. I've had guys use my mix and – guys can get it from me anytime buck fever treats me really good they you know i'm actually working with the owner of buck fever right now to possibly have my own mix with them we're, I like we're that. talking about it yeah we're talking about it uh and troy's great to me don't get me wrong he takes great care of me um that buck fever works great i just you know i'm one of those tinkers i'm one of those guys that i'm like i feel like i i try to be a scientist when i'm out there with these whitetails and I test things all the time year around on camera in video. And when I see something work better than normal, because I, it makes sense to me to try this, then I do it. When I see something not show me any evidence at all that it's better then I, you know, I go back to what was best. So right. and I'm always trying to evolve with sense. And I feel like trapping a whitetail, especially an old buck over a scrape in the mountains of this kind of country and the way they live and the low deer density numbers and how far they're willing to travel just makes sense for me to get to see the target buck that I'm after. It makes sense because I'm conditioning him year around to like that spot and to feel comfortable with it and then slide in a couple days and get him killed. You know, that's exactly what happened to me this year. My son was playing college football. They made a big playoff run. They made it to the national championship in the FCS. I had no weekends at all. None, mm-hmm. but I was able to allow that scrape of mine to work that buck for me and keep him close. And I was able to get the perfect shot at him and nobody wants to admit this, but I just flat out blew it. I shot right over him. I'm at glad, 16, I'm glad you're being yards. honest about it. <laughs> 16 yards just blew it. Yeah. My son just dropped his head. He was like, dad, are you kidding me? <laughs> I said, yeah, hey. I, said I, I couldn't believe it either son, but it happens. You're human. And, and, you know, no excuses. None. No excuses. Flat out shot right over him. And, and uh, you know, I shot my bow afterwards to make sure. 
and I noticed that my first pin was good to 25. I'm shooting at 16. I'm up high. I'm kind of steep. Maybe I should have shot at the low. You know, I, I the only thing I do different this time instead of center punching him, I should have shot at his heart. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest mistake I feel I made because it was just the right angle. I was going to center punch him. He was so close, and I, I just put the first pin, center punched him. You know, and boom! I couldn't believe it. I couldn't yeah. believe I missed him, and it happens. You know, I had great snow. He was back three days later. Um, I never did get another shot at him. I was really, really limited on when I could hunt him. Um, but he, he's totally a survivor and made it. And Good. You know, my arrow, was, my arrow was clean as could be. And it just happens. Uh, yeah. Did it, does it play over in my mind every day, every night? Yes, it does. Well, and too, I mean, if you're <laughs> anything, I mean, you said you're an athlete and you played college football and everything as well, but you know, you, you know those humbling experiences are really learn le- really big learning experiences. You know, hundred percent. I so. need it. You know, two thousand eleven is the last time I missed a buck, and I told my son. I said, "It is what it is. It, it's flat out I missed." And I, you know, I I've already made some changes. Um, I've got some things on my bow that I was kind of you know guys. I get a lot of stuff handed to me and use this site. Blah blah blah. I've made some changes. Uh, I shoot a crossbow now. No, I I got to take my jabs on the crossbow. I'll never shoot a crossbow unless I'm about dead. (laughs) Now, if if I get to the point in life, that's all I can shoot. You betcha. (laughs) Yep. I can. Agreed. You know, it's it's funny you brought that up. I have a. I broke my back in four places when I was 29 years old. I I have had a a neurosurgeon tell me, Troy, if you want to shoot a crossbow the rest of your life, I'll sign that paper for you anytime no way yep that's just who i am i want to bow hunt until i'm gonna bow hunt till i can't physically bow hunt don't do it unless you have to unless you physically I, have to I, I am and i have nothing against the guy that has a you know i got a buddy that's a army uh vet that got his shoulder blown up and he can't pull a bow back. for sure definitely good for him good for him for grabbing a crossbow and hunting with it yep. uh that's until the day i can't pull a bow back and i think i'll hunt whitetails with 60 pounds you know forever and i pull 70 now but i think you can hunt whitetails i talked to andre about it he's happy with 60 pounds and look what he kills you know i shot i've shot 65 pounds since 2019 of i mean i yeah. shot a seven and a half year old 260 pound iowa whitetail with one and yeah you know it's, so the bottom the bottom line is to all hunters and we know this if you're a good shot and you make the shot and i feel like i'm a really good shot yeah i missed this year i made a mistake but am I a good shot overall? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. If you make the shot, every guy I think would agree with this. If you can make the shot, you're pretty damn good with 55 pounds. Hell yeah. You know, with yep. today's arrows, today's broadheads, 55 pounds. I mean, my son killed my son killed one of the biggest bucks in the state of Washington as a teenager, and he was shooting, I believe, 50 pounds. Yeah. And he hit that deer perfect. You know, he smoked that sucker, double lunged him, and it was just amazing to watch that happen. Twelve yards, just torched that deer, that big old buck, and he was. I think that buck was six and a half. Yep. Um, we got to watch that buck eat that arrow, and that buck just took it, and then he walked like twenty yards away from us, real slow, and he stood there, and then he just tipped over dead. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, anyway, I shot. And it's the whole point is the perfect shot placement. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I shot my first deer when I was 12 with 38 pounds, but 
But I was yeah. also shooting a 55-75 Lincoln log with a <laughs> 150 grain Zwicky yeah. single or double bevel broadhead that my dad yep. put on there. So it's like I'm throwing a Mack yep. truck at him. But, yeah, exactly. You know. and, and I and, and that's another thing. Everybody has their own preference. I like a heavy setup. I do. Yep. Yeah. Um, I like a heavy setup, and and uh, I'll never go away from a heavy setup because most of my shots. Gosh, my whole life. The farthest I ever shot a white tail buck, I believe, was 35. Okay. 33 to 35. I never exactly measured it, but I walked it off. It was 33 to 35. Yep. Yep. You probably don't you probably don't have very many opportunities to get farther than that out there, though. No, I really don't. Uh the stuff that I'm setting in is it keeps it keeps my shot window to probably 35 max. Yep. Very cool, man. Well, I know we got a hard stop right now. I don't. I want to be conscious of your time, but we're definitely going to do a part two for this uh, coming up here soon. But, dude, Troy, I appreciate you coming on and doing this, man, taking the time out of your day and, and uh, coming in and bullshitting with me. Thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate you having me, Aaron. That, was, that time flew by fast. So <laughs> it really did, yeah. It. I think we got a lot more we could cover. Uh, I'd love to visit with you again. Uh, there's a lot we can – you know, we just kind of scratched the surface there on actually the hunting part of it. Yep, for sure. I've got 47 questions and we only went through about four of them. So we got a lot of content. <laughs> so, All right. Sounds good, man. Thank appreciate you, man. it. Yep. Appreciate you. And there it is. Thank you very much, Troy, for coming on and doing this podcast, man. Greatly appreciated. You know, I feel like I've got a new friend in Troy. He's, you know, I text with him. We talk through social media and everything. He'll answer any question I have. This guy's elite. Like I said, he's elite. Check him out. Go look at him on all the social media platforms and everything. And uh, he's even on YouTube. So go check out some of his hunts on YouTube. Troy Pottinger is his name. He's a badass. That's what he is. So thank you guys very much for listening and downloading and supporting the podcast. Also, please go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating, and leave a written review. That is always greatly appreciated. And do not forget, we will be right here next week on the Fall Podcast. Thank you.